As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. We are a day late this week. Normally we come out on Wednesdays. This week got pushed to Thursday. Gosh, what could possibly be going on in college football, Bruce, that's kept us a little busy this week? I don't know, Stu. What what do we want to talk about first? Uh, maybe we should talk. That was a Sam Houston State game last night. No, um, Michigan. And And look. This thing is moving so quickly and so fluidly, and somebody new comes out with a bombshell report the next day that it's possible when you listen to this, it will have moved beyond what we know as of this moment. Uh, this is Thursday. Um, you know, I think the first big development was when ESPN reported that um, <clears throat> that he had bought that Connor Stallions, the quote unquote low level assistants, had bought tickets to more than 30 games at pretty much almost the entire Big Ten. Then it came out as beyond the Big Ten. It was Georgia. It was Oregon. Anybody they might possibly play in the playoff. And then on Wednesday, um, the Washington Post, Will Hobson at the Washington Post reveals that this whole thing came about not because from the NCAA. People always, you know, Michigan fans, all the NCAAs do is out to get us. The NCAA never knows about it first. It was an outside investigative firm that approached the NCA with documents and videos. The firm said it had obtained from computer drives, maintained and accessed by multiple Michigan coaches, according to two people familiar with the matter. What did they find on the computer uh, information? Um, the it, Among the pieces of evidence the firm presented, those people said, was a detailed schedule of Michigan's planned sign-stealing travel for the rest of the season, listing opponents' schedules, which games Michigan scouts would attend, and how much money was budgeted for travel and tickets to scout each team. The opponents targeted the most on the schedule, these people said, were not surprising. Top of the list was Ohio State, Michigan's top rival in the Big Ten, and scouts planned to attend as many as eight games, costing more than $3,000 in travel and tickets. Next on the list was Georgia, with four or five games scheduled for in-person scouting and video recording, also costing more than 3,000 travel and tickets. In total, these people said, Michigan's sign-stealing operation expected to send spend more than $15,000 this season, sending scouts to more than 40 games played by 10 opponents. Let's pause for a second and take that in. Um, sign-stealing is rampant in college football, but I've never heard of anything like this. I think the part that is weird to me a little bit out of this, you know, obviously on terms of there's multiple levels in terms of how this is getting out, you know, who had the ax to grind on this to, to, um, to tip some of this stuff from the internal piece of this, but also you're Michigan. Did you really need the, that kind of Intel on that many programs? I could see if it was Ohio state and Penn state and certainly Georgia, if you think that's who you got to, but some of the other stuff, I don't know. That to me seems like, you know, being totally candid, Stu, I, you know, some of the stuff that I've heard from coaches, there are definitely some nefarious things that go beyond, that fall into the category of advanced, advanced scouting. 
but they usually only involve one or two um, of their opponents, not like almost everybody they possibly could have played. Just it's so it's so elaborate. It's so clearly um, coordinated by many, not just Connor Stallions. Um, also, you know, more has come out about who Connor Stallions is. And it just seems like from a young age, he was obsessed with Michigan football. It was described as a manifesto that he wrote about how he would run Michigan football if he were that guy at some point. Um, and whether we think he was doing all this to try to impress Jim Harbaugh or the staff, or I don't know. I mean, it seems like Michigan, you know, I've heard various people say, well, what difference would this really make? Like you can, you can get all you need off the TV copy. Well, I don't think they'd be spending this much in time and effort if it hadn't helped them in some way over the, cause they did this going back to 2021. So it must be paying some sort of dividend for them to keep, uh, to not only keep doing it, but it seems like expand the scope to who knows if they're going to play Georgia or Oregon in the postseason. You're doing it just in the event you might possibly play these teams. Yeah, look, if it's if it's fifteen thousand dollars in the course of like what we hear for people paying for NIL and these, you know, and other things that they expend, you know, recruiting wise. um. I could see how somebody's like, once you cross that bridge of morality or lack of it, it's like, then they probably think it's money well spent. So in talking to coaches, what do they think of all this? Um, there's a lot of people who are like blown away by the depths of this, um, that it to the extreme and the extent that, Connor Stallions and Michigan appeared to have gone through this. Um, there, there's a, a chunk of coaches I've talked to in the past week who are like, there's some bad stuff that goes on beyond the um, in-game signal stealing that happens, whether it's people showing up at spring games who shouldn't be there. Uh, there's certainly some of that that I've heard about. Just the the depths of this is was to another level. Um, you know, it looks like I think there's people who are fascinated by this story in coaching. Uh, you know, if this happened at a Mac school or if it happened at an even an ACC school that probably wasn't Clemson, um, I think there would be like a curiosity, but it wouldn't be that much. The fact that it involves the team that is the odds on favorite to probably win the national title this year. And it's Jim Harbaugh. And, you know, in the vacuum of this, what's also interesting is, you know, Jim Harbaugh did one of the most amazing turnaround jobs of anyone in coaching in our careers. I wouldn't say necessarily our lifetimes, but it meaning in the last like 30 years, what he did at Stanford. Then he goes to the NFL and does an amazing job turning around the 49ers. Then in Michigan, it had been muted, to be honest. There had been some good things, but some not so good things. He could not get over the hump against Ohio State. Um, and then it it just changed. It just changed in 2021. Uh, so when I've asked people, like, how big of an impact do you think this had? Um, it's not hard to draw the parallel there. Now, right. there's certainly... Some other things like one person made this point, which I think is a good point. One of the coaches was like, listen, once you start rolling, then all of a sudden success breeds success. You can recruit better. A lot of other things change when you are you are having success in the buy in of this. And normally when people steal signals, it's like, hey, we want to find out, is it run or pass? In this case, it's like, no, what's the pass? What's the run? You know, and that sort of detail. And the truth is like. Um, one of the coaches I talked to who was at a group of five, and this is an offensive coordinator, he said, when you have that kind of intel with the talent Michigan already has and the physicality they have, it's like, it's going to be a long day. You know, you just, you know, that's just it. And so it's been really interesting to hear the responses. I, I will say this, it is not, um, there are some people who are like, Hey, this, this has, this is going on at some other places, but not to this degree. Of course it blew up because it's Michigan and Jim Harbaugh. Like that's not, you know, when people are like, oh, you guys wouldn't care about this if it was going on at Kansas State. I mean, 
the actual details of it would fascinate me regardless because who doesn't love a good espionage story well, we care like most people cared about the wakey leak story in wake yeah ex- exactly this is this is wakey leaks on a um bigger scale i think uh in terms of like i mean wake force has gotten you know pretty good under dave clausen but at the time that that happened which was i don't know six years ago or so they weren't really a factor yet and of course michigan's a bigger deal i i i think what is also playing a big factor in it is not you you know we know jim harbaugh is polarizing well part of that is he himself has you know over the years put a big emphasis on that they do it the right way in fact you know so first he he you know they already have one ncaa investigation he's already been suspended and when he came back from that suspension he said and i quote we're going to become a gold standard of compliance so then this turns around and happens. And so there's definitely like a, 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 a you know, around the country right now, people like, oh, he's a hypocrite. Um, this How many is coaches do, by the way, do, you, do you think, though, fit into that category where they are somebody who's very prominent and they talk about because usually they have a big platform if you are prominent, and you had success. And then all of a sudden it becomes, you know, Hugh Freeze is infamous for right. where but you know, there's a lot of coaches who talk more than just about winning football games. You know, it's there, you know, people are very cynical about who are not probably people who listen to this podcast. I'm not saying the people who listen to this podcast aren't cynical, but like people who are very cynical about college football feel like there's a God complex that goes on with college football coaches more than it does with coaches in other sports, because there's a hundred kids and by and large, they're mostly kids. The staffs are bloated the contracts are what they are. There's a, there's an education and development piece of this, right? So that, I think that does go on a lot. I'm just saying, I would not like, like Jim Harbaugh is not unique in that regard. I feel like he's been particularly, he's not unique, but he's been particularly outspoken. Think about how much the rest of the big 10 can't stand him or the program that so quickly after this first broke schools were confirming to reporters oh yeah we looked it up and that guy bought tickets to our games um like people are rushing to let it be known the extent of the alleged rule breaking and somebody hired this law firm and maybe by the time you listen to this podcast that will have come out but somebody hired this investigative firm or law firm whatever you want to call it to basically go get them so now, they're the top team in the Big Ten right now. They've won the last two championships. They look like they might win a third. And so, obviously, when somebody gets that good, somebody else wants to, to take them down a peg. But I don't think it's just because they're good. I think there's a brazenness to what they were doing that obviously rubs the coaches in the rest of the league the wrong way. Because you're saying these coaches are telling you, oh, yeah, um, this happened at a spring game or this happened here or there. But nobody was rushing to turn those people in. There seems I to have been a concerted effort to turn this school in. I I wouldn't say that because there's a lot of stuff where people turn people in and nothing happens with it. You know, like, you know, one of the things that pisses coaches off a lot and Phil, you know, like to, you know, to similar degree is the tampering part. Mm-hmm. You know, Pat Narduzzi turned, you know, has turned people in. Other people have, you know, like nothing happens from it. So I wouldn't make the assumption nobody's turning people in. Like we don't know who gets turned in usually or not. Like that's the uh, with the tampering. I I do remember um, somebody the story talking to a bunch of coaches about tampering, and then they say, "Well, did you turn them in?" No, I bother. They're not going to. That's wrong. About it. That is wrong because we did a story. Max and I did that story, and I know I talked to a bunch of coaches who said we turned them in. We talked to our compliant. Nothing happens. Um, probably why nothing happens with tampering is it's hard to. You know, the, the, what what stands out of the stories, there seems to be a paper trail and and possibly video. Um, a guy says, oh, this guy tampered with my player. How do you prove that to the answer? Well, you may have you may have um, text messages you can turn in. Right. I, again, I this is a very elaborate whoever yeah. whoever decided to to out Michigan went to the length of hiring outside investigators. It's nuts. It's as I've said to people, first of all, you know, some some people are getting caught up in like, well, 
how serious is this really? And, you know, why don't they just use wristbands and da 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 da? This is first and foremost a soap opera. It's a soap opera that people can't get enough of. And college football's history is full of soap operas. I'm thinking of, the, it seemed like it went on for years, the Phil Fulmer um, lawsuit. He turned in Alabama. He couldn't come to the SEC media days one year because if he crossed the state line, he was going to get subpoenaed. Kind of like an only in college football kind of thing. And this feels very much like an only in college football kind of thing. So in terms of what comes of all this, you can never predict what the NCAA is going to do. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of high profile cases recently that kind of ended up a, a dud in the end. The punishments were very light, if any. Uh, but this is unique. We talked about it on Sunday. This doesn't involve something that happened in the distant past. It's happening this season. And that's why I've said now in writing a couple times and will continue to say that the organization that would have the most flexibility and perhaps the most uh, pressure to do something immediately or before we get to the conference championship game is the Big Ten. Because we see like, you know, Tony Petiti just got there, the commissioner, the uh, clearly his constituents are unhappy. They have a basic assumption of, you know, or expectation that the games are fair. And, uh, you know, I looked up their sportsmanship policy and kind of like Roger Goodell, he has pretty wide latitude to punish the school for their uh, sportsmanship, breaking their sportsmanship policy, bad sportsmanship. Um, you see that most often in the form of, I mean, just the other day, a Michigan State player got suspended for half. Um, but that's what would you think would be a like an apt punishment at this point? I think they should be banned from the Big Ten championship game. I think they should have to forfeit wins from early in the season. If they, if, well, let me back up. If they have this paper trail and the evidence, you can't just do it based on anonymous allegations. If they have the info that supposedly exists, the NCAA supposedly has, that shows that they were, you know, uh, breaking the rules and spying on their first however many opponents. You could, they could have to forfeit the wins or short of forfeiting the wins, they could be just banned from the championship game. Now, some people would say, well, then they shouldn't be allowed to go to the playoff. That's a little trickier because the playoff, as far as I know, doesn't have any sort of disciplinary uh, arm or mechanism that those guys are just pick the four best teams. And if they think Michigan's one of the four best teams, they'll be in the playoff. But I think Tony Petit is probably feeling the most pressure right now. I just think it's going to be a constant drip, drip, drip of more info and more details Here's showing a, the extent of this thing. And I don't know how long you can just sit on, well, we don't condone, you know, we take this stuff seriously. Here's the problem that I think they would run into, you know, in terms of like how quickly can they prove it is banning them is one thing, but it's almost like you can't have them play Ohio state then. Because mm -hmm. if they play Ohio state and they beat them, cause you know, Ohio state will have changed everything. You know, mm -hmm. that it's on Ohio State if they don't, you know, if they go into that game now knowing what they know. But then Michigan plays Ohio State and they beat them. If you're the Big Ten, I would like obviously Michigan still has to play Penn State as well, and it's at Penn State. But let's assume for this purpose that Penn's that Michigan beats Penn State. Like you can ban them for that, but then all of a sudden basically you've torpedoed your own your own conference. Correct. And obviously we know full well that TV runs college football at this point. Fox pays uh, the Big Ten a lot of money to show that championship game with an expectation that the team that won the division is in the championship game. Now, we've had instances in the past where um, Urban Meyer's first season, Ohio State was on a postseason banning and they were undefeated and they didn't play in the championship game. That stuff happens. But I can't think of an instance where the conference stepped in and did that. And so they might just on it for that reason like well we have to wait till the ncaa completes its investigation and michigan has a chance to respond and that who knows that could be three years from now uh and in which case jim harbaugh will be off coaching whichever nfl team and and his successor can deal with the consequences of that so um i make no predictions of what will happen i think it's too there's just no template there's really no nothing that has happened no case from the recent past i can think of gives any indication of what the punishment would be for this. 
Okay, Stu, back to the podcast in a second, but now a word from our sponsor, LinkedIn Talent Solutions. When you are hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just a jobs board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within the first 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. LinkedIn knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. So post your job for free at linkedin.com audible. That's linkedin.com audible to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily with 24 seven US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We you didn't get to the mailbag last week when I wasn't here, so we're gonna dive deep into it right now. And as always, you send your questions to the audiblepod at gmail.com. Okay. The first question, uh, this is from Mark and PA. Hey, Stu and Bruce, when Lincoln Riley left Oklahoma for USC, there were a lot of Sooner fans who downplayed him leaving and said that the team would be better off since he couldn't win a playoff game with his offensive system paired with inadequate defense. It looked like a lot of sour grapes as USC had a Heisman winner and OU stumbled to a bad 6-6 six and six finish. Now OU is humming and looks primed to win the Big 12. USC is floundering and the defense issues remain. Both teams are preparing to enter new conferences next year. Which program would you buy stock in for the next five years? This is a good it's question. A, it's a good question with the, without an easy answer. I mean, obviously, before this season, 10 out of 10 people would pick Lincoln Riley. And um, based on how each his first season went, and now we're not even through this whole season, I'm sure some people will answer this saying, well, definitely Venables, right? You know, Riley can't have it. Lincoln Riley showed now he can't feel the defense. They're going to go in the Big Ten and get physically dominated, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there is a difference, I think, two differences. One, I think USC will always have a higher recruiting ceiling than Oklahoma. And they're both going into more challenging conferences, but Oklahoma is going into the most challenging conference. Um, there aren't as many – when things are going well, there aren't as many teams in the Big Ten – that can be on USC's level as there are in the SEC. I mean, half the SEC has, you know, regular 
teams that are regularly contending or recruiting top 10 classes and whatnot, Oklahoma joins that mix. How often is Oklahoma going to, well, I'll throw it back to you this way. Who, who five years from now, if these coaches stay at their schools, will USC, which of USC or Oklahoma, Oklahoma will have won more conference championships? Uh, good question off that. I don't know. Oklahoma's in like right now, Oklahoma's in a good position in this regard. Like, obviously they are, have more momentum than USC does as we're taping this. I like, you know, I feel more confident in, in both teams are going to have to replace a quarterback. We're pretty sure coming off of this season, uh, I'd be more inclined to bet on Jackson Arnold than USC situation going forward. Um, but so obviously for, that can change in an instant with the transfer portal. It could. I don't think this is going to be a great year for the transfer portal quarterbacks. Like there's Cameron Ward who, you know, left incarnate words done well at, at Wazoo. I have no idea if he would move, but it's not like this is a different dynamic than there was last year or two years ago. Um, what we think on the market, if you just know who's back, um, the it, what's interesting is as you know we just talked for 20 minutes about michigan so usc is going to go into it into the big 10 or they're coming with ucla washington and oregon too but michigan i would not feel very bullish on michigan's future after this season with all the stuff we've just talked about no ohio state is is very good i think penn state you know this team most of those guys should be back for next year um the west you know, what's left of the West, there's nothing to be like awed by. So it's like, okay, the landscape of there is very manageable. Whereas, you know, you got OU, you're bringing Texas, who's in really good shape. You certainly have Georgia. You're still going to have Nick Saban at Alabama. I don't know. Let's, uh, I, I'm going to, I just pulled up their schedules. I don't want to play the win loss game because who knows what these teams will look like. Mm -hmm. Which schedule sounds tougher, right? USC is going to play LSU. Oh, I forgot. This, this is going to be USC because <laughs> they're non-conference. They open with LSU in Vegas. They play Utah State. Then they play Notre Dame. Oh, this is not in order. Never mind. We don't have dates. LSU, Utah State, Notre Dame. At Maryland. At Michigan. At Minnesota. At UCLA. Nebraska. Penn State. Rutgers. Wisconsin. At Washington. Oklahoma opens with Temple. Followed by Houston followed by Tulane, then these don't have dates, Texas, at Auburn, at LSU, at Missouri, Alabama, South Carolina, Tennessee, at Ole Miss. I feel like USC actually has a harder schedule. Uh, they do. <laughs> they do. But it's in part because they play LSU. Um, they also play Notre Dame. Yeah, they play Notre Dame. So I don't know. I, all I, which is to say, I don't I'm have saying, a great answer for Mark. I really don't on that, to be honest. Well, let's just say our my the other problem is Venables has such a short head coaching track record at this he point. Does so I I'm going to say Riley, but with like a very very small percent confidence that I'm right. Curie in Lawrenceville, Georgia, Bruce and Stu, you both mentioned on the podcast Sunday how difficult it is to win every week in college football. In the light of that sentiment. Put into context how impressive Georgia's 24-game win streak is in the era of the CFP, where teams have to win out in the regular season with a conference champ game, then win two playoff games against the top two teams in the sport. Shouldn't we all be pretty amazed by Clemson's 29-game win streak in 18-19, Alabama's 26-game win streak in 15-16, and 16, and this Georgia team's winning streak? It seems like more time is sport more time is spent overanalyzing every flaw rather than appreciating the fact that these teams have been able to put together 20 plus win game win streaks when most teams can't get through one season unbeaten. Absolutely. It's harder to go undefeated now than at any point in the history of the sport. And you're talking in Georgia's case, the equivalent of two, at this point, the equivalent of two full undefeated seasons Clemson did that you know they they had a 15 and 0 season and then didn't lose again you know then the next season they almost went undefeated again lost to LSU um yes we should appreciate those more and so but the other thing that really I, I find interesting is what he said there at the end I agree there were two winning streaks long winning streaks early in my time covering the sport both 
Miami in the early 2000s and USC under Pete Carroll won 34 games in a row, which is astounding. I don't remember the nitpicking like we have now. I don't remember every week people being like, well, I don't know, USC, like kind of like we are with Georgia now. I don't know. Yeah. That's why there was there was a wholehearted appreciation and sometimes, you know, to the to the detriment of overlooking flaws, that great 2005 USC team that ESPN had, you know, a week long segment are they greatest team of all time did not have a very good defense and it and it showed at times in the regular season. But we just they were on such a pedestal. And now, yeah, I mean, if you read Seth Emerson's mailbag about Georgia every week, it's you would think they're like four and seven. There's all the panic over uh, why aren't we, you know, more explosive in the run game? Why aren't are we weak at the this linebacker spot? If I guess you know when you're winning every week, you got to find something to talk about. But I think it's remarkable what Georgia has done, considering, like he said, that's two years in a row that they had to win a conference championship game. Oh, but they didn't win the conference championship game in 20. You had to beat two really good teams in the playoff, come back the next year, go win out in the regular season, beat two really good teams, or win the SEC championship, win two really good teams in the playoff. So he's Kerry's absolutely right. Do uh, you want to ask me the last question, the Ryan question? Because I saw, I would like to talk about Drew Aller before we talk about Brian Kelly and James Franklin. Okay, here's an interesting, maybe a little bit journalism question from Ryan in Lexington. Hey guys, love the pod. I was really bothered last Saturday after the Ohio State-Penn State game. Drew Aller was clearly distraught and at a low point during the post-game interviews. Why do SIDs continue to send out the kids to have to explain to a room full of media why the team lost and not the quote and not the coordinators? Mike Yersich should have had to explain this terrible game plan and what went wrong, not a 19-year-old kid. Um I agree. I think it would help to have the coordinators speak and address why they do what they do did how it is um you know especially in that case i i do agree with what ryan said no look i mean obviously we're biased um we're in the media and we feel like more access and more insight and more people talking about or explaining certain things and look these guys coordinators are paid you know some of them are paid seven figures to do what they do and sometimes we only hear from them when things go great so I would agree with Ryan on that point. And look, you know, being at that game, it definitely felt like Drew Aller, you know, he's an Ohio kid, you know, it's the first time playing in the shoe. It definitely felt like he was wearing it at times, you know, and I don't, you know, unfortunately the quarterback gets all the attention, but it's not, you know, like, I don't know how well the, the receivers didn't, weren't really separating for him. I don't, you know, you wondered if in retrospect, it's easy to second guess this, but like maybe you lean on the running backs more to try to get things going than they probably did so but yeah I, I don't know about you but i do agree with with ryan's point there i agree about the coordinator part um i don't know i mean this th- that game was the same day that that lincoln riley got all the heat for not bringing in any players to their post game so i don't think i don't think it's an unreasonable ask if you're drew aller and you were a five-star recruit this is not your typical 19-year-old who's never been in front of a camera. I mean, going back to his recruiting days, he's probably done hundreds of interviews. I also, you know, think it's good preparation for once you get to the NFL, if you get to the NFL and you don't have a choice. And that brings me to this point. One of the shames of college, the way college football media is op- is um, structured, is that it is left to the coach. The coach can decide on his own we're not bringing, you know, I'm only making my coordinators available twice a year, or we're not bringing in any players or bringing in one player in the pro leagues. It's all uniform. Uh, There are rules about who has to be available when and for how long, and you can get fined for breaking them. Uh, And then that kind of, then, then situations like this wouldn't come up there. You know, I think, of course, I think the coordinator should talk after the game. Some schools let them or have them do it. Some schools don't. And it's entirely the coach's decision usually. So I would love there to be standards, at least across the conferences, even if it's not national. But I've talked to people at the conferences over the years and there's just no appetite. I think they're scared of the coaches. The coaches make so much money. They're the they're the authority figures and they don't want to stand up to them. Uh, Okay. 
You know, one thing we haven't talked about, Bruce, since the Penn State game is you have always had James Franklin so high in your mm-hmm. coach rankings list. And now in light of this game on Sunday, you know, there's starting to be a little bit of backlash towards him and criticism. There's been always, Stu, let's that. not kid it. There's always been backlash towards him. There's always been backlash towards him. It's very magnified this week. Michael Galvin in, in Agora Hills in the subject line just said James Franklin versus Brian Kelly. They're the same coach. Both seem to build 10, 10 game winners, win the games they should, fold in the big ones. Who do you have more faith in to get over the hump? A good question. I mean, they there are similar. Like they're teams that are really good. Like I I I would be surprised if Penn State is worse than 10 and 2 this year. You know, but at the same time, it's like they look tight in the big games. What's different, I feel like, is that team. You know, look tight in in big games, and you know, is it better? Brian Kelly plays a big game and loses by thirty. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't like. I think they're both really good coaches. I think Brian Kelly's a really good coach too, but I don't look at them and go, "Oh yeah, either one is like right there to win a national title now." I no, mean, they're 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 not. I thought LSU would be closer to winning a national title this year, but they're but they're definitely not. They lost by what they lose by twenty eight points to Florida State. The only thing I would maybe disagree with is James Franklin beat Ohio State in twenty sixteen, and it was a huge win. And then he's just really never had wins like that since. Um, his record against top ten teams at Penn State is three and sixteen. We all remember Notre Dame you know, uh, getting beat like a drum by Alabama in the national title game or again in a playoff later. But he did win some big games Um, and he won a big game last year. He beat Alabama on, um, you know, in his first season at LSU. Is he, uh, you know, Nick Saban? Absolutely not. But I feel like he's got a little bit more of a track record of winning some of these big games. And I mean, he's my answer of who do I have more confidence in turning in in um getting over the hump getting the hump, over the hump means win the national title though right he didn't really define it but that's what uh, i would define. Let's, let's say that I mean, here's I the thing. lsu the last three head coaches won all on national titles there if you don't want to you didn't leave notre dame to to keep going nine and three ten and two yeah that's he came there to win national titles and it's a school where you can win a national title and, uh, you know, you mentioned those past three coaches, Nick Saban, uh, uh, Les Miles, Ed Ogeron, none of them had the track record when they were at the time they were hired that Brian Kelly did when he was hired. Um, he He's won at a very high level for a long time. So, yes, I have I to me, it's not even a, a, that much of a choice. I have more faith in Kelly than Franklin. OK. Uh, next question is from Patrick Einit. Thank you, Patrick, by the way, for phonetically putting that, because I would not have gotten it right. Neither would Stu. Uh, much is made about situations such as Kalen DeBoer and Michael Penix teaming up, but when Washington is on TV, they show an offensive coordinator calling plays. So how much was made about their success at Indiana with Penix DeBoer, and how does this work? Similarly, there are places such as Ohio State where Brian Hartline was promoted to OC, but the camera shows Ryan Day calling plays, as well as Mike Norvell with FSU in their situation. As both of you know, a lot of narratives are based off of these principles, just looking for some light shed on them. That's a good question. I think I'm going to throw it back to you because, first of all, you're very familiar with Kalen DeBoer and his background. Ryan Grubb is such a highly thought of offensive coordinator that Nick Saban tried to hire him last year and Washington ended up paying him uh, $2 million a year. But Michael Panix did not play for him at Indiana. He played for DeBoer. So how much do you how much do you put on the head coaching relationship? Like what's more important, the head coaching relationship with the player or the pre-existing OC relationship like Bo Nix has at or had at Oregon? I I don't think you can, you know, it's there's not going to be an easy answer here because it's all to varying degrees, you know. Like I think. Kalen DeBoer has been with Ryan Grubb since their NAIA days. And I think that relationship is, is unique. I think what, what's different in this case, I feel like most of the country, and I, this means the college football diehards, really don't know anything about Kalen DeBoer. 
you know, he burst on the scene last year when he was at, when he was in the big 10 at IU, I'll be honest. I didn't know him at all. I just heard the guy at Indiana does a really good job. And I was like, Oh, and then I was like, I didn't know hardly anything about him at that point. Now, since I've, I've, you know, worked to do that, where in the case of Ryan day, you have an established guy, you know, obviously had a huge role in CJ Stroud blossom into, you know, one of the top two picks of the draft. And I think in that case, like, like Ryan Day is calling the plays, right? And, you know, at some point, maybe Brian Hartline will be the primary play caller, but that's now how it works. You know, Mike Norvell has always been an offensive guy. You know, his offensive line coach um, has the title and is involved in the game planning. But I think those situations, and I notice, I think Fox does this now where they will, when they font up, when they put the graphics up about what positions each guy play, they will actually outline who is the primary play caller. That's, I think it's Fox doing that. I've definitely seen that more watching TV than I, this year than I ever did before, you know, and look, I think that, you know, certain guys are more comfortable giving the attention or the oxygen to some of their coordinators or play callers than other coaches are, to be honest. I'll be honest. I don't know how, given all the demands on a head coach today, how these guys are able to also be play callers. I mean, Ryan Day has done it very well. Um, but I think by the same token, you could argue that maybe Lincoln Riley is too focused on offense and not enough on the whole team. <clears throat> and then that's part of the, you know, you can argue with the record as a play caller, as a quarterback coach. But when you see the inability to ever take the next level on defense, it's like, well, maybe the head coach should be spending more time on that side of the ball. So, um, I don't know. It's it's Gus Malzahn was always the one who I felt like every two years was okay. Now I'm going to be more more CEO type and hand off the play call. No, I'm going to take the. It's just hard when they've been doing it for as long as they have. They have real trouble um, letting go of it. I think it's something also like I remember this. Like I've done you know sideline for UCLA and some of these guys like you can see like Chip Kelly gets like giddy in the play calling mode. It's like something. You know, if you ask somebody like, what do you love most about your job? I think there are some guys and it's not a lot, but I think there are some guys who like, I would, I would rather do that as much as any other part of the job. You know, it's, there's like this chess match of, I have all this, you know, this is, I don't want to say it's like, this is my thing, but it's like, there is something when they're in a rhythm and there's something that, um, there's probably very hard to replicate. I don't know defensive coordinators as well like that. Um, you know, a lot of times defensive coordinators are up in the box, not always, but you know, like, um, Pete Carroll was a head coach who was a defensive play caller. That's pretty rare. You know, you just don't see a lot of that anymore. And he obviously won championships that way, but it's, it's, it's like, it's a good question, but there's no, there's, there's really no easy answers for it. Cause it's just so different. This last one's right up my alley because it involves the Bay area, Matt Hetrick. Listening to the pod today, this was on October 17th, I was shocked to hear Bruce refer to Justin Wilcox as a, quote, good coach. Justin Wilcox was 13-22 and 22 since 2020. He has now lost 14 straight Power 5 games outside of the Bay Area. I, I'm going to have to take his word on that stat. I don't know that if that's – I don't I haven't seen that stat. 13 straight games against ranked opponents and is 1-14 in his last 15 games against FBS teams with winning records. Bruce is not the only commenter to make comments like this. Cal is a challenging job, but don't you have to win to be a good coach? I think um, he got off to a good start at Cal. He inherited, a, you know, they had, they had really struggled under Sonny Dykes and they got back to being competitive and going to bowl games, beating some good non-conference teams. And then COVID hit and it's never been the same. And at this point, you can't really use that as an excuse anymore. So um, I think he has had some problems figuring out what his staff should be, who should be, especially on offense, kind of cycled through a couple OCs. Um, they don't have an identity. Like, what's the identity of Cal football? There isn't one. So I, I, I'm not going to say he's a bad coach, but he, I don't quite, you know, at this point, I think whatever the, there was definitely, Oregon was going to hire him. Oregon, he could have gotten the Oregon job before Dan Lanning. And now, like, imagine if that scenario was there today. 
uh, Oregon fans would would revolt if that was their choice for head coach. Yeah, it is a it is a tough job. That's all I can say. It's just like I don't know who goes there right now and could win and sustain success, especially now that it's really being marginalized with the rest of the league moving away. Um, you know, resources are not good. The commitment to football is not good. I feel like that got like even worse, you know, post Jeff Tedford, who did a really good job there and won a lot of games and brought in a lot of talent. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's one of those jobs where I'm like, man, I don't want to say it's like what Wake Forest was, you know, pre Clawson or, you know, like what your alma mater was, but it just, in, in a lot of ways, it's in a worse place because of the conference instability now that it's going to deal with. People have asked, would they fire Justin Wilcox? And I think, I don't know, but I doubt it. And, you know, somebody else looking at it might be like, well, how could they not, right? Based on all the stats he just said. But it's a mess over there. The um, The chancellor is, I would say, not particularly sports savvy and she's retiring. You, 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 I, I don't know if how many people know this, but there was a huge scandal there with their swimming, with their, you know, legendary swimming coach. Um, and now the AD is under investigation for how he handled it. They don't have money. And now they're going to be, you know, taking less to go play in the ACC against schools they have nothing in common with. To your point, Bruce, I don't, I don't, I think you could put Nick Saban in that job and he would struggle uh, in the, in the climate that isn't that sad because, Jeff Tebert had some great teams and like a NFL all pro team full of um, players that came through there. And it's just not that anymore. There's just no, um, there's no, it doesn't feel like there's any, any buzz or any direction around Cal football. Yeah. I mean, and it, it is strange because, you know, there is some, certainly some history there, but if you look, you know, without that Jeff Tedford run, um, it was pretty pretty dismal at times you know like the byu ad tom homo was there i think he was there for five years one win three wins four wins five wins three wins Marucci mariucci was only there one year um bruce snyder had a couple of good years but it was just like i'm looking at this it's just like almost they went a long time without ever having a top 25 season like mike white had one you know, Marv Levy was there. It's just not, you know, and you have to go back to the Pappy Waldorf days, and that's like 75 years ago. So all the more appreciation for and I don't think you appreciate enough at the time for Jeff Tedford, who um ninth in the country in 20, 2004, 25th in 2005, 14 in 2006. I would have thought they had more ranked teams after that, but they he never had another ranked team, apparently. Um but they, you know, they would at least go nine and four, eight and five, go to bowl games. That's not what it is now. What a downer to end this podcast on. Why don't we just real quickly say which games we're most excited about this weekend? Uh, I definitely want to see Utah this weekend. Um, I'm in studio. We'll have a blast with Chris Peterson, but we'll not um, will not be on the road with my big noon buddies. But I, you know, like right now, I was so impressed by Kyle Whittingham's team last weekend against usc it just seems like they're trending up even injuries notwithstanding you know um that's going to be a fun atmosphere you know it's a it's a one of the best atmospheres on the west coast i don't know if you give them a lot of chance to beat oregon but it's a top 10 opponent coming now, in. i don't know why do you say that I, I, I never questioned vegas i guess but when i saw oregon's at almost a touchdown favorite i was like really um, Oregon's great. Uh, don't get me wrong. I could easily won that Washington game, but you're playing Utah is playing. They basically changed the whole season changed, you know, and, and they're on a roll now and they're playing at home. Like I would give them a decent, actually, I oh, go ahead and say it. I picked Utah. No, you did. Okay. I didn't know that. Okay. That's well, the game of the day, but also, um, you know, it's Florida, Georgia, it's cocktail party. Florida has definitely exceeded my expectations and a lot of people's expectations. And this will be, uh, you know, we're going to see Georgia, what Georgia looks like without Brock Bowers. I think Georgia wins probably pretty comfortably, but 
I don't know if you're going to get him, this might be a spot. Uh, any any chance that Luke Fickle beats his alma mater? I'd say there's a chance. Primetime, Camp Randall, um, you know, Ohio State obviously coming off of a huge game last week, but they just haven't been very good this season. They really haven't. I mean, they scored six points at home against Iowa. Um, they came back from a two-touchdown deficit to beat Illinois last week. Like, it would have to be a better version of Wisconsin that we've seen to this point. What about you? Uh I give them a chance. I mean, because, but I think Ohio State is trending in the right way. I think they're going to be healthier. I would, I think they, they end up winning that game. By the way, sneaky good game in the Pac 12 this week, not the one we talked about, but in Tucson, Oregon State six and one goes to play a very um, dangerous Arizona Wildcat team. Yep. I love Oregon State, but I took Arizona in that one. Um, I think their defense, which has been a surprise, um, might be problematic for DJ. I, when you said there's another Pac-12 game that's sneaky good, I thought for a second you were going to say Colorado-UCLA, which I think will be a bloodbath. Uh, that's the primetime ABC game. And just the thought of that UCLA pass rush against that Colorado offensive line is about as big a mismatch as you could have. You know what's crazy? So I this is the second time I've heard you go, I picked. And I'm like, well, you normally do this podcast on Wednesday mornings. And I am not traveling this week. Also, I've spent more time on the phone this week talking to coaches than I probably have at any point this season. It's just been a constant stream at this point. I forgot to do my picks because I just assumed it was Wednesday. Well, I hope Jill Thaw is not listening to this, our editor, but I I I got halfway through the day yesterday. I was so caught up in the Michigan stuff and I was like, oh, crap, it's picks day. Like I too forgot that I was, my picks were due and ended up writing them at night. So glad I wasn't alone on that. Please, Jill, don't listen to this episode and and our other coworkers don't tell her to listen to this episode. As always, you can send your emails to autopod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.